Well, Dr. Ben Mitchell, thank you so much for uh, for joining me and being willing to do this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so to just start things off, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, I guess where you're from, your salvation story, how you sure. got interested in, in bioethics, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, I'm not from anywhere. Uh, my okay. dad was in the Air Force, and I was actually born in Tampa, Florida. I lived there till I was eight years old. Central Missouri uh-huh. uh, from eight to... Uh, junior high, junior high, and high school in Southern California. So I just kind of uh, don't don't really have a sense of home. Sure, wherever I'm at is is home, and uh, that's worked out well in my life because I've moved. My wife tells me we've moved 17 times in our married life. So, oh wow, that's um, a lot. <laughs> I wasn't born in a Christian family, uh-huh. and uh, never really heard the gospel uh, until I was 18 years old after I had graduated from uh, high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, moved to Dalton, Georgia, uh, the carpet capital of the world, from Lompoc, California, the yeah. flower capital of the world. Wow. And um, went to a church there with my cousins and uh, heard the gospel for the first time. And mm-hmm. over a period of about a month, uh, had become a Christian. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that turned my world upside down uh, in so many different ways and ultimately uh, experienced a call to ministry mm-hmm. uh, and uh, went off to... Uh, pastor a small church in central uh, east central Mississippi oh wow uh, in Louisville Mississippi and graduated from Mississippi State University from there to Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth and uh, then pastored for a while pastored all, all that while but mm-hmm. also pastored full-time for a while in uh, the Chattanooga area mm-hmm. and um uh, while I was in Chattanooga, was asked questions like, they want to take granny off the ventilator, what should we do? Wow, yeah. Those kind of medical ethical questions. Mm-hmm. And I really wasn't prepared for that. I, I uh, in my training in seminary, had told me we shouldn't kill granny, but I didn't know uh, what right. else we should yeah. do or shouldn't do. And so I found a program at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville uh, where I could uh, do a PhD uh, in philosophy, which was one of my passions and loves, Mm -hmm. uh, with a concentration in medical ethics, and it just brought together uh, the theology, the philosophy, and the so what Mm -hmm. uh, questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the end of the day, once you've thought big thoughts, you have to make some decisions. Right. It was really helpful to me. Uh, My program at the University of Tennessee not only included all the coursework for the um, PhD in philosophy with a concentration in medical ethics, but we did ethics rounds. So I wore white lab coats and medical ethics on it, was in the wow. UTK, UTK Medical Center, yeah. um, East Tennessee Mental Health Institute, and finished my clinical rotations at mm-hmm. Vanderbilt. And so uh, uh, while I was working for our denomination's ethics agency, the mm-hmm. what's now the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission was then the Christian Life Commission. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've been involved in medical ethics and and the the broader realm of bioethics since that time. Uh, Mm -hmm. Taught for uh, three years at Southern Seminary in Louisville. Uh, taught for 10 years at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School where they have a, an MA in bioethics mm-hmm. uh, and also uh, uh, I headed up the Center for Bioethics and Human Digni- Dignity for uh, a couple of years right. and then came to Union uh, where uh, we have a, a liberal arts context but we also have professional schools, a, a nursing school and a mm-hmm. pharmacy school and um, plus the School of Theology and Missions. I've, mm-hmm. I've taught an MBA class in, in ethics, business ethics, and I, I just get to roam around. Right, I say you're a busy guy. It's wow, just, yeah, it's just so much fun to me, uh, and such great uh, colleagues, such wonderful students. Yeah, and it's just been been a joy to be at Union. Oh, that's fantastic, man! Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna scoot this mic up just sure. a little bit to you, just a 
tad there we go uh well what i find fascinating is that you said that what you know first got you into this was kind of like it sounded like a like a pastoral care kind of thing right. you wanted to answer the questions of your congregation and that's not something that i thought about so when i was kind of you know, looking into your background and thinking about some of the questions, um, that did not even come into my mind. Yeah. But so how important do you think this is to to pastors, the, the realm of bioethics? Oh, it's huge. It's huge. In fact, I just came back from Chicago where I taught um, a day-long seminar for pastors and chaplains mm-hmm. along with an ICU doc. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were teaching on end-of-life issues, and the, and the pastors have lots and lots of questions and mm-hmm. are, are faced with, with helping families uh, take that journey through the valley of the shadow of death and then sometimes right. on to death. Mm-hmm. And so those those questions that technology raises at the end of life are huge questions. Mm-hmm. I told the... Um, uh, the folks in the class that there was one technology that changed end of life ethics uh, uh, forever, mm-hmm. uh, and it was flexible plastic tubing. Really? Uh, because before flexible plastic tubing, there was really little else we could do besides hold somebody until oh, they okay. died. Right. But yeah. with flexible plastic tubing, we can push uh, intravenous fluids. We can put people on ventilators, right. artificial breathing devices, yeah. and so that one simple technology changed just changed everything. Life ethics wow. uh, in in pretty significant ways. Um, and so now the question is not. Um, which technologies should we uh, use? Now the question is, is there ever an appropriate place to say, I've, I've finished my course, I've run the race, mm-hmm. uh, no more technology, uh, let me die. Right. And, and people have a, a real uh, struggle trying to make those kinds of decisions. Mm-hmm. The other area of life that uh, sort of brought me into bioethics was uh, I'm half of an infertile couple. My wife and I haven't been able to have children. And so okay. all the questions around infertility and reproductive technology yeah. began to be part of our lives right uh, yeah and questions about uh, which technology when do you stop mm-hmm. uh, questions about in vitro fertilization mm-hmm. and and the uh, uh, the problem of losing uh, human embryos in right. the process uh, right. so the, so the question of what is the nature of unborn human life became yeah. an important question for us and I think those still remain the two areas, what the late uh, ethicist Paul Ramsey called ethics at the edges of life. Those are the two edges, the front mm-hmm. edge of life, the, the back edge of life right. uh, that uh, we still struggle with. Yeah. Increasingly, pastors will struggle with questions about uh, genetic uh, therapy and other kinds of therapies in the, in the, the middle section of life. But mm-hmm. right now, it's the, the ends of life that are, are really uh, posing the most critical questions, I think, for yeah. us. And those are two things that I, I definitely want to talk about. But before we get into those, can you just give a brief uh, definition for what bioethics actually is? Yeah. And uh, for those of you who may not know, um, just uh, kind of, and, and not only that, but what separates it from plain old Jane ethics? Yeah, yeah. So bioethics, uh, by definition, the bio part is life. Uh, so bioethics is the ethics of the life issues. Mm-hmm. And usually uh, people separate bioethics into medical ethics, so ethics in the realm of medicine, mm-hmm. uh, uh, physicians, nurses, patient care, those kinds of issues. Um, in, then there is a, a separate component, uh, bioethics, that includes research ethics, mm-hmm. in both on research on human subjects and also on animals. 
And then some people will, will think of bioethics as uh, broadly more um, environmental type ethics, mm-hmm. uh, questions about how we, how we live and steward the, the world in, in which we um, live. So bioethics tends to be broad. The, the other area, the other dimension of bioethics that, that I've worked in and that I find uh, intriguing is the area of um, uh, um, the the way that biotechnologies right. uh, uh, invite us to to redefine what it means to be human. Everything from robotics to artificial intelligence to, to genetic mm-hmm. manipulation uh, to uh, things like um, uh, human embryonic uh, stem cell research. Those emerging biotechnologies ask us to rethink what it means to be a human being. Right. And uh, uh, all of those technologies are now kind of percolating up in, in the culture, and we mm-hmm. have to begin to think about those uh, pretty seriously, it seems to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you hear, it's it's crazy that you even think about, you know, AI technologies and stuff when it comes to bioethics as well. I mean, because you hear that coming up more and more right. uh, on, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and so a lot of podcasts will be talking about, you know, what's the future for yeah. uh, humans when it comes to AI. I mean, I've seen the Terminator. I'm not an expert, right. but I have seen the Terminator. Right. So, so how does that come into play with well, bioethics? Well, um, there's a there's a movement uh, among certain people in biotechnology called mm-hmm. transhumanism, mm-hmm. and the transhumanist movement uh, is the idea that we are transitional humans on our way to being posthuman. Mm-hmm. So you have postmodern post-Christian, and now post-human. post-human. Wow. And transhumanists uh, believe that we ought to use uh, the variety of technologies we, we have now and will have at our disposal, uh, including um, artificial intelligence and robotics, to kind of escape the frailties of our humanity, mm-hmm. our aging, our um, limited uh, intelligence, our limited uh, memory, uh, we ought to use technology to try to uh, enhance human beings, even if that means giving up our bodily uh, existence. Right. So if you're thinking uh, something like um, The Matrix, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. where you live in a virtual world, right. um, then that's exactly what, what uh, some people like Ray Kurzweil, an inventor and philanthropist, think uh, is the next step for human beings. Mm-hmm. We, could, we could upload human consciousness, he believes, to... Uh, a virtual uh, form like the internet or some other virtual format and live indefinitely then. Mm -hmm. And then with robotics or or perhaps human cloning, then we could download that consciousness into a new body or into a machine Mm -hmm. and uh, create a generation of cyborgs. Right. And it sounds absolutely fantastic and, and futuristic, uh, and impossible, mm-hmm. and it may well be impossible. That's one of the questions we have to think about. But uh, nevertheless, uh, what we once thought was science fiction is now science fact. Right. And so it, there, there are reasons to be concerned about uh, the way these technologies will be used in the future and mm-hmm. what the impact on humanity uh, made in the image of God would be. Right, right. And I think you, you touched on it there. One, so my next question, I guess, is, um, is a little bit more broad. So, what is the 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 standard when you're going through uh, bioethics? Is it kind of a case by case situational thing, or is there one particular thing that you judge everything else by? Well, it depends on who's doing the the medical ethics or mm-hmm. the bioethics. Uh, from a, a Christian perspective, of course, I want to begin with. 
the Genesis account and the fact that human beings are uniquely made in the image of God mm-hmm. and that as image bearers of God, we have a stewardship responsibility, mm-hmm. uh, the dominion mandate in Genesis uh, chapter 1, mm-hmm. uh, to replenish, multiply, and uh, to keep until uh, the earth. To So I want, mm-hmm. I want to... Uh, embrace our humanity as uniquely made in the image of God and then our responsibility as uh, those who are made in his image to care for the for the world and to be innovators and to be uh, uh, creative mm-hmm. etc if you're thinking about the world of secular bioethics uh, be, uh, one one of the features of secular bioethics is that because they don't believe, the secularist doesn't believe either in uh, biblical authority or that there's any one Christian or, so let me take that back, any one religious narrative right. that is yeah. true, then um, the best we can do is what uh, has become known now as the Georgetown mantra. The Georgetown mantra uh, was developed at Georgetown University in mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. by a couple of uh, ethicist one uh, who is at Georgetown uh, and those two ethicists wrote a book that is sort of the Bible uh, I'm using scare quotes now for, for those who are listening, right. uh, sort of the Bible of bioethics this day called Principles of Biomedical Ethics by Tom Beecham and uh, James Childress. In uh, Principles of Bioethics they say that there are four basic principles that should guide our thinking about medicine and uh, other uh, human ethics uh, autonomy or patient self-determination, the ability of a person to make their own decisions, uh, non-maleficence, not doing harm, mm-hmm. and that's usually described some, uh, as the first principle of bioethics or medical ethics, don't do any harm. Right. But then um, beyond that, do good or beneficence is the third principle. Mm-hmm. And the last principle is justice in a context in which there is a just allocation of scarce resources, which we always have in in medicine. We have more people who have needs and we have resources to to, um, assist them. So autonomy, uh, non-maleficence, beneficence, and justice. And by sort of reifying or adjusting uh, the case, and in that sense it is case by case, uh, adjusting the case uh, along those lines, um, you'll come to some suitable resolution, or at least uh, one among other mm-hmm. um, uh, suitable resolutions of the case. It's not situation ethics per se. Uh, it is case-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, every case presents its own unique variables. Right. right. Uh, but um, uh, how to, how to uh, reify or adjust those principles uh, mm-hmm. becomes more a matter of in my in my view, it becomes more a matter of taste sometimes than it does um, the the science or art of ethics. Sure, sure. So uh, we you you talked earlier about how right now the main things when it comes to bioethics is the the beginning of life and the end of life, mm-hmm. and so that's actually something that I'm really curious about because I've had a conversation with people about you know things like in vitro fertilization mm-hmm. and and all that kind of stuff. So when it comes to that specifically, like the in vitro fertilization and mm-hmm. uh, and you know even down to like sperm banks and all these different mm-hmm. kinds of stuff, what what is your opinion? What do you think Christians should know and how should Christians respond to things like this? Yeah, well, yeah. In order to answer that, you have to unpack it a little mm-hmm. bit and. Um, so uh, the first thing I want I would want to say is that um, we are we are called to be procreative. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, we're procreators. God made in God's image to to replenish and multiply the earth. 
because of uh, our fallenness, because our biology doesn't always work perfectly, uh, there are uh, interventions sometimes that mm-hmm. we have to make in order to help people uh, procreate. And where those interventions can help people procreate without causing other, other harms, it sounds, like a, it sounds generally like a good thing. So mm-hmm. uh, there are certain fertility drugs, for instance, that simply uh, help uh, women have a more regular cycle and uh, there are no uh, uh, bad side effects to either the woman or uh, future children. And so that sounds like a, uh, where that's possible sounds like a good thing. Mm-hmm. The, the challenge with in vitro fertilization is that it usually works this way. You take um, the, the reproductive cells, the sperm from, mm-hmm. from a man, and you take the reproductive cells, the eggs from a woman, and you combine those in a petri dish in vitro in vitro means in glass okay. so very first the very first in vitro child louise brown who was born at the end of the, the 1970s uh, was called a test tube baby okay uh, that's where that term yeah, came from that everybody knows but, right, yeah. but actually um, it wasn't a test tube it mm-hmm. was a petri dish mm-hmm. that little little small glass dish and so and so fertility specialists will uh, first, give women uh, or a woman uh, the drugs to make her uh, create lots of eggs or, or to uh, produce lots of eggs at one time. Um, then they will retrieve those eggs and put, say, a dozen of them in a petri dish. Mm-hmm. Then they will retrieve the, the man sperm uh, and they will introduce the sperm to the petri dish. Uh, and then uh, the rest is the way everything happens naturally, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak. Um, except that uh, if all 12 eggs are fertilized by the sperm, now you have 12 human embryos mm-hmm. in this dish. Uh, no one would ever transfer 12 human embryos to the woman's body. Right. Uh, that would be disastrous for her and for the, and for the, for the embryos, the human embryos. Mm-hmm. So usually uh, they'll transfer two or maybe three, realizing that some of those embryos are not going to survive. Yeah. And in hopes that you'll have at least one embryo that, that will survive. Um, so the question then is, um, what is the nature of this human embryo? Mm-hmm. Uh, that is to say, um, if we believe in the sanctity of human life, that human beings have sacred value from conception onward, then um, uh, what happens to those early embryos matters. Right. And not only that, uh, not only might we lose one or two of those that are transferred, or maybe all three, mm-hmm. uh, but but we have, say, nine left over. Uh what do we do with those? Well, you have to either uh, freeze them so they could be used later, mm-hmm. um, or in some cases they are used for research purposes. Uh, in other cases, they are um, just destroyed or discarded. And and finally, there are some couples who will adopt out those embryos. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's an agency in Knoxville, Tennessee that specializes in adopted embryos. And they're called snowflake children because mm-hmm. they had been frozen. Right. And every child is unique, just like every snowflake is unique. Yeah. And so they're called snowflake children oh, wow. when they're when they're born. Um. So so uh, back to the back to the embryos in the petri dish. So if you have nine embryos in the petri dish, 
um, and you believe that human beings are uh, have uh, are deserving of respect from conception, mm-hmm. then what you do with those dozen embryos matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, we know, for instance, that a certain number of those embryos are going to die just in thawing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, somewhere around ten to fifteen percent, um, maybe a little higher, will die just in thawing them. Uh, and and um, not every couple is going to want uh, those embryos to be transferred to the to woman's uterus. They they will either uh, decide they're not going to be able to have children mm-hmm. after all, or uh, in one famous case in Maryville, Tennessee, a number of years ago, it's my hometown. Yeah, a, yeah. A, a man and and his wife uh, had embryos, uh, and they decided they were going to get a divorce. Mm-hmm. The question was, whose property right. are these wow. embryos? Yeah. The very first judge in in Maribel, uh, mm-hmm. to judge in that case used uh, um, custody child custody law to decide the case and treated the embryos uh, as um, very young children. Mm-hmm. The Tennessee Supreme Court heard the case and used um, property law and oh, wow. treated the embryos yeah. not as persons but as property uh-huh. and had and had a very different decision. Uh, the case of, of uh, the Davis versus Davis case is mm-hmm. the famous case, and you can look it up online. And uh, it it set some precedents for um, for dealing with uh, unborn uh, uh, human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so those questions at the beginning of life in in vitro fertilization are really pro- problematic and challenging. And for that mm-hmm. reason, because uh, because of the problem of uh, either the loss of these human embryos or their destruction, mm-hmm. or, or even worse in my mind, in some ways, using them for research purposes, mm-hmm. um, I don't favor in vitro fertilization. I think that there are good reasons uh, to uh, reject that as a biblical uh, method for procreation. Mm-hmm. There's one exception, uh, possible exception, and that is that it is... It is uh, possible, it is doable, to only fertilize one egg at a time. Oh, okay, right. The reason that fertility specialists don't want to do that is because um, it, it um, uh, is more difficult for the woman. You have to, you have to uh, 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 cause her to uh, ovulate uh, and then only take the one egg. So, so she has to uh, have that uncomfortable therapy. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, uh, if that embryo does not survive, you have to do the whole process all over again. It costs more. Right. It's more. It's more difficult. Has more more hazards, and and more trouble. Uh, so typically, fertility specialists don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so usually, it's not it's not a, it's not a, a um, an alternative that is offered. Right. But I think it has a little more promise, uh, even though I still worry that we're putting embryos at risk mm-hmm. when we don't have to. You don't have to, to uh, generate these human embryos. Uh, and um, adoption is still uh, an alternative mm-hmm. that uh, couples have. That's uh, not the only way they have to have children. So, right, yeah. right, yeah. So why do you think there is this... Uh I guess this this big desire to do the the in vitro fertilization. Do you think mm-hmm. that there is? Um, I, so one of the conversations that I had was that I think sometimes families can at times make having your own biological children almost into an idol, yeah. and uh, and so they'll do almost anything uh, in order to see that dream come true. Yeah. So do you think that's a 
problem when it comes to that, even within the Christian household? I, I think it can be a problem. I, I don't want to be too hard on them at first, sure, because I want to I want to remember that we were made mm-hmm. to procreate, right? That yeah. God designed us that way, and everything about us, from our from our desires and passions to our biology, mm-hmm. uh, uh, points to the fact that we were made to pro- to procreate. So the desire to have one's a child of one's own is a is a very very um, uh, primary uh, human desire. At the same time, uh, as Augustine uh, would remind us, Saint Augustine would remind us, um, good desires can become disordered desires. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a good example. My uh, my sister in law uh, was experiencing infertility early in her marriage. Uh, she happened to be a Presbyterian elder's wife at the time, mm-hmm. still is, and um, remembers being in a grocery store and seeing a newborn in the grocery basket, uh, the little the child seat section of the grocery basket yeah. uh, there in a, in a child carrier, and noticed that the new mom walked off uh, to buy some kind of produce in another section or to pick out produce in another section of the, of the um, uh, market. And my sister-in-law said, it ran through my mind just at that moment, I could snatch that baby and be out of here before she, uh, know. Before, yeah. before she could catch right. me. And she said, where did that idea come from? Mm-hmm. And I just think that underscores the fact that this is a very, very strong desire. And mm-hmm. As half of an infertile couple, I know how strong uh, couples feel uh, mm-hmm. about both uh, uh, the desire to, to have children and then and then the trauma uh, sometimes of not being able to have children. So I understand that. Mm-hmm. Can can that disordered desire become an idol? And the answer is yes. Right. And there are if you listen to couples talk sometimes, and if you listen to their families talk, uh, you can understand how that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about the way that that young girls especially are socialized in our in our culture. Again, it's not a bad thing, but from from the time that they're old enough to have a doll, they're mm-hmm. thinking about their children. Right. Um, yeah. And then um, they have little uh, tea parties and, and all kinds of things where they think about and talk about having husbands and having a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and then often the family will say things, especially to, to newlywed couples. They'll say things like, well, when are you going to bring us a grandchild? Right. Yeah, you know, so exactly. So you feel all those cultural and, and family pressures sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then when you find out that you can't, uh, for whatever reason, um, uh, have children, it's devastating Mm -hmm. uh, or can be devastating. And so uh, the fertility industry and and there are there are really good fertility specialists. And then there are some, I think, who are are um, capitalizing on this desire. But the fertility industry as an industry Mm -hmm. uh, is sort of like the Wild West. Just about anything goes. And they will promise couples that they'll be able to have a take-home baby, even though if you look at their data, mm-hmm. um, and this data is public data, but if you look at their data, you'll find out that the, the that if a fertility uh, clinic is having a 30% take-home baby rate, mm-hmm. they are raving about their success. Wow. Whereas couples, when they hear that you can have a child, if you come to our clinic, you can have a child... Uh, uh, take take home baby. Right. Um, that what they hear is uh, this is the solution. Yeah, a hundred percent. This is yeah. going to work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, so so if, if the clinic is not uh, doesn't have a lot of integrity and doesn't doesn't inform the patients well, mm-hmm. uh, then then um, you know people will. I mean, there are couples who mortgage their homes mm-hmm. in order to go through yet another cycle 
of fertility treatment uh, can cost wow. anywhere between yeah. eight and ten thousand yeah. uh, dollars for the whole cycle of fertility treatment. So, couples will will use all their uh, capital, all their assets, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes more, uh, just in the effort to have children. And that's not even to to get into. Um, Surrogacy, uh, having having somebody else carry the children. That was my for next you. question, right? Yeah. Um, uh, there is an there's an international fertility tourism out mm-hmm. there where where people will uh, employ a surrogate in say India uh, or or some other uh, country because uh, the the surrogates tend to to work cheaper mm-hmm. uh, and they will employ a surrogate to have their baby and then and then you know fly to to Mumbai and pick right. pick up the child, right? Um, uh, and so, you know, it's become it's become a huge uh, kind of reproductive industrial complex yeah. out there. Yeah. And uh, some of it is good, some of it's uh, bad. Mm-hmm. I'll just say the word: it's bad, it's wrong. And sorting through that uh, is really, really uh, a challenge for couples, and yeah. especially when when they may be blinded by uh, their desire to have a child. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So, what are your thoughts on on surrogacy just as a as a whole concept yeah yeah um i actually have a have a really interesting uh, real case that i use in in class of a young woman uh, and her husband who aren't able to have children and um, the fertility specialist says well the problem you have to this young uh, woman married woman is uh, that that you are able to get pregnant, you're just not able to carry the baby to term. You have Mm -hmm. a uterine condition that means you're not able to carry the baby to term. All you need is Mm -hmm. a good uterus. Right. And so she, um, after some consultation, she goes to her her sister and she says, would you be willing to carry our baby to term? And the sister says, "Um, yes, I'm going to be the child's aunt or aunt and Mm -hmm. I'm going to help care for this child anyway. So it's the least I could do for my sister and my brother-in-law is to carry the baby to term. Mm -hmm. And she says, I can still be a virgin because the the pregnancy is not going to occur uh, through any uh, adultery. It's Mm going to occur technologically through... Uh, uh, retrieving the husband's sperm in a in in the clinic and re- retrieving the wife's eggs in the clinic and then in that same clinic mm-hmm. uh, the embryos will be will be generated in vitro and then those embryos one or two will be transferred to the the, the sister. Mm-hmm. Well, at first it sounds like a really laudable thing for the sister to do. In other words, uh, it's something you ought to celebrate. Sure, uh, right. sister is willing to carry this baby to term. But I worry. I worry. I worry about a lot of a lot of things about that. One, of course, uh, to go back to the original uh, conversation, is about the status of those embryos. If they're going to create mm-hmm. a dozen embryos, and and you're not going to, not all those embryos are going to survive, then then you are intentionally putting those embryos at risk. Mm-hmm. That's different from regular pregnancy. Uh, yes, um, women do miscarry, and sometimes. Um, uh, tragedies like that occur, mm-hmm. but that wasn't that wasn't an intended right. uh, consequence right. of, of the pregnancy. Um, so I worry about that, but I also worry about uh, I mean even even the language that we use. Well, all you need is a good uterus. Tends to objectify not just the woman in mm-hmm. this case the surrogate, but it objectifies the woman's body. Right. You know, all right. we needs all we needs a healthy uterus with legs. That's mm-hmm. all we need. Um, uh, and that, that, that bothers me. It worries me that, um, worries me about the possible impact on the family. Um, uh, we know, uh, by, um, 
by both experience and by the testimony of Scripture that sometimes these third-party reproductive relationships don't work out. Mm -hmm. There's not in vitro fertilization in the Bible per se, but we, we remember the story in Genesis of Abraham, right. yep. Sarah, and Hagar, mm -hmm. and that didn't turn out well. Mm -hmm. uh, there was jealousy, uh, there, there was division, and um, why we would think that we are better than they are and right. can, can avoid that in every case, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's that worry. There's also uh, um, a worry in my mind about the, um, about the maternal-fetal relationship. I mean, one of the things we tell pregnant women is um, that you need to begin developing your relationship with this baby uh, before uh, the baby's born. Mm -hmm. uh, read to the baby, sing to the baby, uh, all kinds of things, you know, good diet yeah. and uh, all of that. Right. So that, that, that maternal-fetal relationship is being developed with another person, a third party, mm -hmm. rather than the biological mother. Uh, and then finally, I worry about, um, let, let's just say, that the young surrogate mom uh, uh, discovers through a prenatal test that she's carrying a child who has a disability like Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. And she says, um, I'm, I'm not going to bring another disabled child into the world. I'm going to have an abortion. Um, how could she possibly be stopped in, in, a, in a, a culture like the American culture with mm -hmm. as promiscuous abortion laws as we have? Uh, who's going to make her carry the child to term, and how would you do that? I mean, are you mm -hmm. going to put her in jail? Are you mm -hmm. going to are you going to fine her if she has an abortion? What what are you going to do if right. she says I'm not carrying that baby to term? Uh, so so there there that's another layer of potential problem, um, and then to just to add uh, to the complexity, mm -hmm. that would be what we would call an altruistic surrogacy, where um, in this case the young um, the young sister volunteered to do this, but what about commercial surrogacy where women uh, 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 are paid to do uh, the very same thing, to carry mm -hmm. a baby to term for somebody else? Does that, that raises another set of questions about, uh, about both objectification and now commercialization of a woman's body. Mm -hmm. um, you know, are women, are women commodities that we buy and sell in the marketplace? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, or uh, should we think about uh, should we think about this more and and uh, do something uh, different maybe again, right. like adoption yeah or yeah. even embryo adoption I, uh, there at any given time there are as many as four hundred thousand frozen embryos out there that don't have a home wow um, I want to I want to argue that we ought to quit creating spare embryos mm -hmm. but then what do we do and I, w I think embryo adoption is, is at least something uh, families ought to consider if they if they want to have more children or, or don't have children want to have children right um, it's, it's a way to rescue those mm -hmm. embryos yeah yeah uh, well that actually answers the question because I was going to ask you what do you think we should do about these things but uh, uh, so going back a few steps you said one of the problems with in vitro fertilization is uh, some experiments that are run on the embryos that don't get used uh, and so I, I guess, yeah, I want to talk about stem cell research. Yeah. Uh, so what are your thoughts on, on, on that? Well, that was, that was the presenting um, problem, uh, or one of the presenting problems with um, human embryonic stem cell research. Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't heard a lot, a lot about that lately, and I, I'll say why in just a moment. But 
Um, we haven't heard a lot, a lot about that lately, but the, 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 the way the argument went was we have all these spare embryos. Uh, we don't want them to go to waste, mm-hmm. so let's use them for research purposes. Well, if, if human embryos uh, uh, are human beings made in God's image, mm-hmm. then to use them and um, not only if they're um, human beings made in God's image, but also if, in fact, the research that is done on them ends in their destruction, which it, which it does at this point, um, then, then that's hugely problematic. I mean, you're, you are using these embryos as human subjects and then mm-hmm. you're destroying them in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the presenting problem for human embryonic stem cell research. The, the other problem with human embryonic stem cell research has been and continues to be that we're not very good at directing the embryos to make the the cells, the embryonic stem cells, to make the kinds of tissues that we want. Mm. Um, uh, they sort of have a mind of their own, and so we have we have found other ways, other avenues to get the, uh, some uh, tissues that doesn't involve embryos at all. Right. And I think that's uh, they're called I, IP, ISP cells. Um, and I think um, that's a better alternative than embryonic embryonic stem cells. But mm-hmm. you're exactly right that if, uh, given what I've said about human embryos, if you believe what I'm saying is true, mm-hmm. then embryonic human embryonic stem cell research is is problematic. Yeah, absolutely. So w- my last interview that I had a couple weeks ago was with Megan Allman of the Life Training Institute, yeah. Yeah. and uh, and and her whole thing is um, well, the Christian position is you know, what is the unborn? And like, just like you said, if it is human, then everything else, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if, you know, stem cell research could cure cancer. It can't sacrifice the, a a being made in the image of God for that. So my analogy is, um, I have two things about that. That's really insightful. So two things Mm -hmm. about that. One is, when you begin to talk about this and the nature of the human embryo, people say, oh, that's just the abortion debate all over again. Mm-hmm. Have, are we tired of the abortion debate? Well, one, I don't think we're tired of it per se, although we do weary uh, having to, to continue to fight that battle. But right. um, this is not like that in that the, the abortion debate traditionally has been about and historically has been about um, a woman's right to control what happens with her body. Mm-hmm. But in human embryonic stem cell research, there's no woman's body involved. Right. Yeah. The, the embryo has been isolated from the woman's body, is in the is in the petri dish, and so in some ways, it's the it is the more um, urgent question: what is the nature of unborn human life? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is just about the um, what we would say the, the the kind of naked question, the the bare question: what is the nature of unborn human life? Right. Um, the other, the other thing I would say um, uh, about that is that I might have forgotten the other thing I was going to say about that, but um, it might come back to me. Oh yes, yes, your point. Uh, yeah. So, or her point. Um, if it's okay to destroy one human being mm-hmm. to save another human being, then we know that t- that today, as you and I are talking, there are between eighty and a hundred thousand people. Uh, on the waiting list for life-saving organs, mm-hmm. hearts, lungs, uh, uh, other other tissues uh, that could that could save life, uh, we know that there are about a hundred thousand people uh, today who need those life-saving organs. So why don't we just maybe um, 
take the next 10 people who walk down the sidewalk and mm-hmm. just kill them right. and use their organs. Right. We would we would actually save more lives than than we would take in that case. Right. Well, that we know that that calculus is wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you don't kill a human being to to harvest their parts and mm-hmm. use them to save somebody else. Um, we we may favor organ uh, transplantation, but we don't kill the patients mm-hmm. to get the organs. The, they have to die first. Right. Uh, and similarly, we ought not kill human embryos just because doing so we could use their cells to save other people. Right. It just doesn't. It doesn't uh, make good sense. Yeah, and I think that speaks to the the. I guess the logical consistency when it comes to the the Christian ethic, uh, because we have a consistent standard across the board that you know people are made in the image of God and therefore we have to treat them uh, with that kind of dignity and and respect. But when it comes to you know take like the humanist philosophy, they kind of believe the same things that we do, but they don't have the the foundation for it. Right. And well, so and why not kill those ten people? Yeah, and that's even changing. So for instance, when the President's Council on Bioethics under uh, George Bush mm-hmm. um, uh, appealed to the notion of human dignity, mm-hmm. so they didn't say image of God. Right. They said human beings have are exceptional. They have a special dignity, mm-hmm. and therefore we ought not. Um, unnecessarily harm these human beings. And mm-hmm. So they talked about human embryonic stem cell research, they talked about end-of-life issues, they talked about a lot of issues using the term human dignity. Mm-hmm. That term, human dignity, is found in all of the major uh, ethical and bioethical documents that have come uh, into the world since uh, uh, the Nuremberg trials mm-hmm. and the Nuremberg trials were where we saw the violation of human dignity right. in Hitler's yep. Germany and so uh, the, um, uh, the 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 international agreements that have focused on things like uh, genetic engineering or or emerging biotechnologies have all used the term human dignity just mm-hmm. as the President's Council did. Steven Pinker the famous Harvard uh, psychologist yeah. or, or neuropsychologist um, said uh, about the time the, the President's Council was uh, kind of winding up its work under President Bush, mm-hmm. he said that the notion, wrote a famous article, I think it was in the Atlantic or maybe New Republic magazine, uh, uh, where he talked about the stupidity of dignity. Those, wow. here's, those are his words. Yeah. He said that human dignity is an invention. And that that um, we can't we can't make the claim that human beings have a special pe- a special place or mm-hmm. a special value, uh, and we ought to quit using that term. And a famous philosopher um, uh, said the same thing, and she talked about the squishiness and mushiness of human dignity. So mm-hmm. my point is just to say that even the notion of human dignity, which has which has uh, sort of governed our thinking about human beings in the world for a long time now, even that notion's under threat. Right. And we have to find a way to ground human exceptionalism mm-hmm. uh, in the face of, of these technologies, in the face of the animal rights movement, right. uh, and other and other movements. If we're going to preserve uh, our humanity as as we know it, I was in Rochester, Minnesota, uh, last weekend, mm-hmm. the home of Mayo Clinic, and PETA, uh, the, the um, animal rights uh, group, had a huge billboard in Rochester, Minnesota, that says. It has a picture of a cow and a calf, and um, the the uh, billboard said, um, "Not your mother?" Question mark. Not your milk. Oh, In boy. other words, 
um, uh, uh, the the right of the calf mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, was to have the mother's milk, but human beings ought not ingest uh, cow's milk, right? Uh, because cows uh, have a life and. And I believe that we ought to be good stewards of cows. I believe right. uh, that the dominion mandate or the cultural mandate uh, uh, calls on us to not to unnecessarily harm animals. But I don't believe that that um, calves uh, are more valuable than human beings, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. or that that that, that uh, cow's milk uh, somehow isn't something that we're at least permitted, mm -hmm. whether we mandated to use it or not but they were at least permitted to uh, consume so right so uh, again uh, the notion of human dignity is under assault mm -hmm. and I think we have to work hard in our culture to maintain the uh, the notion of dignity mm-hmm yeah absolutely uh, so shifting gears a little bit and kind of I guess before we get into uh, the end-of-life things um, uh, another thing that, that you don't hear quite as much, or at least I don't hear quite as much as I used to, uh, but still know it's a topic, is is that of, of cloning. Um, and, uh, and again, I've seen a lot of movies, so I don't want to claim I'm an expert, yeah. but I've seen Sixth Day with Arnold Schwarzenegger, mm -hmm. and I know what can happen. So Right. Well, one of the reasons we haven't heard much about it is because we've not been very successful at it. Oh, okay. It. Um, uh, even animal cloning has its problems. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, Dolly the sheep, uh, the, 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 the famous uh, uh, cloned uh, sheep from Edinburgh, uh, Scotland, uh, died an early death, okay. uh, had lots of problems associated with with cloning, and uh, and then and then after that, as people were debating whether or not we should clone human beings, a number of countries, a fair number of countries, actually banned human cloning mm -hmm. uh, and and cloning experimentation. In the United States, what that means is <clears throat> that we don't fund cloning research. Um, using tax dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no law against human cloning, but you can't find government funding for human cloning research. Uh, that doesn't mean that there isn't somebody out there privately trying to do it, but uh, they would have to have a pretty uh, a strong sense that they were going to get a good return on their investment to mm -hmm. invest in human cloning. And uh, and there would be a public outcry against it if they announced that they had a human clone. There'd be all kinds of repercussions from the scientific community. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's kind of gone out of, oh, out okay. of the, right. the, um, the limelight lately. It doesn't mean it couldn't come back tomorrow. Sure. Uh, but, but the lack of success and the public uh, outcry against human cloning, I think, has, right. has caused it, if not to go away, at least to kind of go underground. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean they're not cloning tissues or other things. There are, there are other ways of cloning that don't involve cloning an entire human being. Sure, sure. And um, I don't, some of those may be problematic for, for different reasons. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of them are not. Uh, but the idea of cloning um, you or me uh, mm -hmm. is not, is not uh, kind of in vogue right now. Sure. Well, that's not a bad thing. No, it's not. Right. It's not. So what about euthanasia, getting to the, to the end of life? Um, what do we do when the example that you gave at the beginning of the interview, you know, you have uh, a, someone who wants to be taken off the ventilator or, yeah. or someone who is even uh, non-responsive and you have to make that decision of, of, you know, do you unplug or do you not unplug? What, yeah. do, you, what do you do? So how do you handle those situations? Well, interestingly enough, uh, the dignity question comes back, doesn't mm -hmm. it? Because the argument for assisted suicide and euthanasia sometimes is described as death with dignity. Mm -hmm. And we're given uh, in the cultural um, um, 
vocabulary or cultural discourse, um, we're usually given two options. Uh, either you have to die a terrible, painful, unrelenting, excruciating death, uh, or uh, you could take a pill right. and just go away. Um, in fact, there are a whole range of other uh, alternatives, uh, and uh, people are dying every day uh, in comfort, uh, in the arms of their uh, loved ones, in, a, in, in hospitals or at home or in nursing homes, uh, where they're, they're not exper- experiencing excruciating pain mm-hmm. and someone hasn't given them a drug to kill them. Mm-hmm. But we're given the, those two uh, dramatic options right. to kind of push right. the debate. Yeah. So uh, let's start with our same premise. Human beings are made in the image of God. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, we should not unnecessarily harm another human being. Mm-hmm. You and I can have a discussion about uh, just war, or we can mm-hmm. have a discussion about self-defense, or we can have a discussion about capital punishment. Uh, th- those those are, are separable topics, but but um, I, I ought not uh, unnecessarily harm another human being, and I take killing as a harm. Mm-hmm. And I take... Uh, assisting in the killing of a human being uh, equally to be a harm. Now, what is what is um, assisting in the killing of a human being? It's a question of agency. Um, what am I doing to end that person's life? Uh, in, a, in euthanasia, uh, the physician actually ends the life of the patient by pushing an overdose of morphine or some other mm-hmm. drug. Mm-hmm. In assisted suicide, the physician gives the patient uh, a lethal drug so the patient can take it himself or herself. So it's assisted suicide. Right. I'm very clear that euthanasia is wrong, mm-hmm. that, that we ought not turn physicians into killers, mm-hmm. and that, they, that, that um, uh, we ought not um, allow physicians to um, uh, positively end the life of a human being. I also uh, think that assisted suicide is wrong because, um, I mean, look, um, uh, people can commit suicide anytime they want to. I, I hope they won't, and I don't advise it, and there are lots of reasons why, but um, a person can kill themselves anytime they want to. What assisted suicide asks us to do is make laws that turn physicians into accomplices. Mm-hmm. And so we want a physician who is, who is the, the, one of the ultimate emblems in, in our culture of the healer. We're asking physicians now to become killers. Mm. And even someone as notorious as the late uh, Dr. Dr. Kevorkian, Dr. Death, mm-hmm. believed that physicians shouldn't do that, that we ought, to have separate, uh, we ought to have a whole separate group of people who are trained to do that and not let physicians be uh, accomplices mm-hmm. in assisted suicide, even though he himself was. Right. Um, so, so I think assisted suicide and euthanasia are wrong. The thornier question for me is when is it appropriate either not to use a technology toward the end of life mm-hmm. and, and, uh, or to with, withdraw right. technology at the end of life? And um, do I believe... Um, that as as the the wisdom of Ecclesiastes says that there's a time to live and a time to die, or as the Apostle Paul uh, could say, uh, I have run the race, I've finished the course, I'm you know I'm ready to to die. Um, yes, and I think that that ideally uh, uh, we uh, under God and by the the um, 
help of, of uh, wise counselors uh, can come to the place where we say, I'm not going to use any more medical technology to keep me alive. Mm-hmm. I mean, after all, that's what our great-grandparents did. Mm-hmm. They didn't right. have medical technology. Um, so they, they just got to the place where they said, I'm, I'm ready to die, and, and they, they went to sleep. Or, mm-hmm. or maybe, they had, maybe they had some pain that now we could treat uh, at the end of life, but they, but they died. Right. Um, uh, so ideally I want, uh, the, the patient to make that decision himself or herself. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's actually the law. Not only, not only do I think it's, it, it can be not in every case would it be, but it can be appropriate for a person to say, I don't want any more treatments. I'm ready to die. But, but, uh, legally, if you treat a patient, a competent patient, mm-hmm. a patient who has decisional capacity, if you treat that patient against his or her will, it's a form of battery. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are laws against against that. Yeah. So a patient can say no, um, and I think there are times when uh, I would say no. Uh, I, uh, but I want the patient to make that decision himself or herself, not mm-hmm. for somebody else to make it for them. Right. But what do you do when the patient um, can't make those decisions? Mm-hmm. Uh, the patient is unconscious, or the patient has lost their. Uh, cognitive capacities and in because of the sickness that they have the illness they have well that's where we have um, uh, brought uh, uh, living wills and advanced directives into the yeah. into the equation right. right and we've said that a patient can extend his or her uh, decision making to another person mm-hmm. uh, Usually it's uncontroversial. It's usually just next of kin. Mm-hmm. Uh, husbands make those decisions for wives. Parents make those decisions for their children. But it can be problematic. I, I was doing my clinical rounds uh, at a hospital in the South, and uh, they brought a man in uh, through the emergency room. I was in the emergency room watching this happen. Brought a man in, and there was a woman who came in with him. And uh, they began. the doctors began to ask her all kinds of questions. Is he, is he allergic to anything? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what happened? Uh, they'll ask all kinds of questions, and about five. They were assuming, I think, this was the man's wife because she came in with him in the mm-hmm. ambulance. Uh, and about five or ten minutes later, another woman comes in, and they say, uh, "Who are you?" And she says, "I'm his wife." Mm-hmm. Legally, she is the decision maker. Right. When he can't make those decisions, she makes those. Mm-hmm. If anyone had had a discussion recently about what he would or wouldn't want, it might have been the woman, the first woman who came in, because he had been living with her for a little while. Sure, sure. Um, wow. So, so um, do you really want your estranged wife making decisions <laughs> <Yeah>. for you, <laughs> right, about right. you? Probably uh, not. Life? Maybe yeah. not. So, so in cases where it, your next of kin is not the appropriate decision maker, mm-hmm. you can designate someone else to be your proxy decision maker, right. your, your surrogate decision maker. Um, and um, uh, the, the living will allows you to say what you would or wouldn't want if you're not able to, to make decisions for yourself. Uh, you could say, I, I don't want nutrition hydration. I don't want to be put on a mechanical ventilator. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be an organ donor. Uh, but the, the so-called durable, durable power of attorney for health care allows you to designate another person who, mm-hmm. in consultation with your physicians, uh, will hopefully make decisions in your best interest and right. consistent with your own values. Um, <clears throat> uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't make all the problems go away. Sure. Um, but, but at least it 
puts in place someone who's going to make decisions, hopefully, that you've talked about, mm-hmm. uh, you've, you've talked with about, and will make those decisions um, consistent with your values. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the problems, uh, and, and I'm happy to, to say more about that as, uh, if you wish, but one of the problems we have is that nobody wants to talk about it. Right. Nobody wants to talk about dying, and mm-hmm. they don't want to talk about what they want or don't want at the end of life. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether it's superstition in some cases. People think, if we talk about it, it will happen faster. Right. Yeah. Uh, or if it's just that we're part of this death-denying culture. But even the church doesn't want to talk about death and dying. Wow. One of the great emblems of our faith is a cross mm-hmm. on which a man died. Mm-hmm. Uh, the great uh, ordinances or sacraments are about death and resurrection, mm-hmm. uh, baptism and the Lord's table. And mm-hmm. still, we don't want to talk about death and dying. Right. And if we don't recover a way of talking about it, um, I, I really fear that um, we will be more and more open to the kind of euthanasia-assisted suicide argument yeah. because yeah. we'll see that as our only alternative. Right. And historically, it's fascinating. Historically, Christians have had a way to talk about that. In fact, there was even a man, there's been more than one, but there's even a famous manual called the Ars Moriendi, the Art of, of Dying, um, uh, that that help Christians walk through uh, the 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 reflection necessary and the discussion necessary to approach death. Uh, this this book was written right after the plague, the great plagues, and wow. it was to yeah. help Christians face the fact that they they're more than likely uh, uh, going to die sooner rather than later right. because of the plague. So what do you need? To, how do you need to prepare yourself uh, to die? We think. On the other hand, if we don't talk about it, then maybe we'll just either die in our sleep quietly or we'll be doing something we really like, like shooting hoops or, or watching a ball game, and mm-hmm. boom, we'll just die. Yeah, right. Um, that's a very modern notion. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in fact, there was an ancient prayer, uh, not ancient, an old prayer in, called um, in, the, in the Litany of the Saints um, that... Um, that called on us to ask the Lord to prevent an unprepared for death. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Because there are good right. reasons for us to prepare our hearts mm-hmm. and our lives to, to, um, uh, to die rather than just to have you know, keel over one day uh, while we're doing something we enjoy. Yeah. So I don't know whether that gets at your questions or not, but I, yeah, no, I think we have, right. we have to have we have to have both discussions: beginning of life, end of life, absolutely, uh, and and they have to be more nuanced than we've been willing to to have in in many cases. Right and at the end of life, I think we just have to be willing to have that that conversation. We owe it to ourselves. We we uh, are responsible to God, but we also owe it to those who are dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our hospital here, we have a program for um, uh, training lay people how to um, care for, for those who are dying mm-hmm. under the rubric, uh, no one dies alone. Mm-hmm. So for patients who don't have family members or patients whose families are not here, lay people are trained to be with them, even even just to sit in the room if they're, oh, wow. if they're not conscious and alert yeah. uh, or to pray with them or to read scripture or to, or to entertain them somehow just in conversation um, so that no one dies alone mm-hmm. because we realize that, that human beings ought not be abandoned at the end of life. Right. 
Right. And that fear of abandonment is, again, one of those motivating factors for assisted suicide and euthanasia. I have to die this excruciating, painful death all by myself, or somebody can give me a pill and end my life. Yeah. And if yeah. we don't, we Christians don't become more involved in the dying process for our neighbors, mm-hmm. uh, and, and especially for our family members, I don't know that we leave them in their minds, whether we leave them with any other alternative than assisted suicide and euthanasia. Wow. Who wants yeah. to be abandoned at the end of life? You know? Right, right. That's a very good point. Well, I've got roughly 70 more questions that uh, that I could <laughs> ask you, honestly. But unfortunately, uh, due to time, we got to start wrapping things up. But I do have two more quick questions okay. that I'd love you for, uh, for you to answer. Um, and the first is... What kind of advice would you give to uh, a Christian who is having these kind of conversations with somebody who may vehemently disagree on on some of these issues? Yeah. So I guess it's more of a tactic kind of yeah. Kind of question. Well, nothing nothing uh, new um, mm-hmm. uh, in in this sense, uh, but become educated. Mm-hmm. Uh, learn as much as you can about uh, the conversation, about the the debates. Uh, you'll find them on the internet. Um, you'll find them other places. Uh, and uh, uh, become become educated about right. about the. Don't let the the popular press be your guide for thinking about these things because the popular press gets it wrong right. almost every time. Right. Not always on purpose, but sometimes because. I mean, the average journalist has no science training and no medical training, mm-hmm. and uh, so um, they they don't always get it right. And then uh, so become educated, and then and then I think. Um, Remember that uh, these conversations are are uh, best uh, under undertaken um, as a friendly conversation where you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, so over coffee at the coffee shop or or um, you know sitting down at a at a meal with people is a good way to have those kind of conversations and and try to detach them from the emotions that mm-hmm. drive some of some of the debate. It's not always possible. Sometimes it ends up being a public policy debate, and you've got to hash out a new law or 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 repudiate or, or put down a bad law. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's not always possible. Where you can have a civil conversation that's educated and well informed, um, and um, uh, rooted and grounded in in biblical truth. Um, the other thing I would say is, I mean, there are lots of resources out there that mm-hmm. now that that were not available at the risk of sounding. Um, uh, self-promoting, uh, a physician and I, a physician from Nashville and I, wrote a book a couple of years ago called Christian Bioethics, a handbook for or a guidebook for pastors, families, and others who are trying to make these decisions. And we wrote it as a dialogue. Mm-hmm. So I would ask her as a, I would say, you know, as a physician, tell me about in vitro fertilization. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And then right. she, and then she says to me, well, what does the Bible say about the beginning of life? And so yeah. we have this conversation in this book. Oh, that's uh, incredible. Around. Yeah. A host of issues, beginning of life, uh, uh, all all of them, the kind of clinical issues we do inc- include cloning, but mm-hmm. all the kinds of clinical issues that you might face in a medical setting, and then we we every chapter begins with a case study, mm-hmm. and we try to deal with the kinds of issues that arise in the in the case study. Uh, so uh, there are and there are lots of books uh, that are out there that are that are helpful. I would also point you to um, a, a really helpful resource on these questions at the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity mm-hmm. at, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Trinity University in Chicago. Uh, the web address is CBHD, Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, dot O-R-G. Mm-hmm. And at CBHD, you'll find not only a daily accounting of the news in bioethics, but uh, resources, uh, Bible studies, and other things 
on uh-huh. ethical issues and um, bibliography on mm-hmm. all of the, the emerging biotechnologies and other uh, medical ethical issues. So yeah. lots of good resources at cbhd.org. That's awesome. Yeah, well, you actually just answered my second question was, you know, what resources would you yeah. recommend? So that's yeah. perfect. Um, well, I thank you so much for uh, for coming in and answering these questions. These questions are the ones that, you know, I told you I was going into church planting. And these are the questions that, like, keep me up at night, hyperventilating. Yeah. You know, how am I going to answer these when these questions are inevitable? They will come. They will. So uh, I'll, I'll be able to sleep a little bit easier after talking to you. So I appreciate it a lot. Thank you again so much for coming in. My pleasure. Thank you. For listening to the Truth for Doubt discussion series. If you want to learn more about the Truth for Doubt ministry, email us anytime at truthfordoubt at gmail.com. That is truthfordoubt at gmail.com. If you would like to learn how you could become a supporter of the Truth for Doubt ministry, send us an email or feel free to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com t4d. That is patreon.com t the number 4d. Thank you for listening.